Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Brett Menard. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the 416th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is author John Brassard, who's going to talk to us about, and I I just can't resist, the great Long Grove bank robbery of 1921. The uh, history buff for today's show is Rick Sweet. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapsabital. And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of the show called Farouk Dinarin, and today we'll be talking about the Great Long Grove Break Robbery of 1921 with author John Brassard. Welcome to the show, John. Can you start us off by giving us some background on Long Grove at the start of the 1920s? Yeah, absolutely. Long Grove, Iowa was, it's not a very big town, but it's at pretty close to its height. Uh, it had started off as a village. It was like most pioneer towns. It wasn't really much more than a kind of clump of trees or farms. Uh, not trees, my bad. It's early. Forgive me, guys. So it was just kind of a cluster of farms and houses, and then it grew from there. By 1921, it's not exactly thriving, but it's got a really good, solid business. It's got, of course, the bank sitting on the corner. There's one main street that goes through with clusters of neighborhoods around it. It's got a train depot right off that. Uh, about a block away, there's a hotel right across the street. There's a big blacksmith shop. It's got two other garages uh, in the area. It's got a – and small towns were wonderful for those great multi-purpose buildings, and it so happens right diagonally across the, the street from the bank, you have the – it's a combination barber shop, ice cream parlor, and pool hall. Plus, on the second floor, they could hold dances and things if they if they so chose. And then, of course, you can't forget there's a bar right next door. Obviously. All right. So, talk to us a little bit about. Uh, so, this is a a, a reasonably thriving. Um, small town uh, Iowa uh, location. Um, so what kind of law enforcement presence is is around, and who are the main movers and shakers in Long Grove? The, it's like any other farm community. The biggest family or one of the biggest families out there is by the name of Brownlee, and Brownlees were the ones that helped found it. Uh, Brownlees did a lot of really neat things. They were tied to a lot of different things. Um, they had... One was a stonemason from Scotland. He helped build some of the big buildings in downtown Davenport. Uh, There were very successful farmers through there. There was uh, R.K. Brownlee, who was the bank VP at this time. And he has, uh, he did things like start the first telephone switchboard in the area. He actually ran it out of his living room. Uh, There's some other implement dealers. There's, uh, Mr. Murray, who ran the uh, Murray's Barbershop right across the way. There's other people who are proprietors of garages and things like that. Uh, there's 
grain dealers. There's a lot of successful farmers in that area. There's And then there's people kind of coming in and out like you have in many rural communities like uh, Mr. N.H. Calderwood, who married into the Brownlee family, and he's the president of uh, the Eldridge Savings Bank, the town over in course in Eldridge. And he was also coincidentally the first president of the Mississippi Valley Fair Commission. Interesting. So at this time, how were banks viewed by by the general populace? I know any number of farmers who are not huge fans of, of banks and see them as necessary evils now. Has that always been the case? In the 1920s, things had changed a little bit. It was still that love-hate relationship. They didn't necessarily want to be getting themselves into debt with banks, but by the same token, they needed a place where they could get loans for farm equipment, for more land, to sometimes to just get their start, sometimes to expand their holdings. And they were generally a little more trusting, I think, of their local people. I mean, R.K. Brownlee grew up in the community. He was in his 70s in 1921. So he had known and seen a lot of people. A lot of people trusted him and probably felt they were going to give him a fair deal. He had also, and like M.H. Calderwood, uh, he had been a farmer for years in Scott County. And so people, he knew what people were getting into. And people generally trust had that kind of trust with him as well. And so banks were, like you said, it was a necessary evil, but they didn't, they didn't seem to hate him, but they didn't seem to be the biggest fan of him either, because banks, especially savings banks, went up all across Iowa. Savings banks, you needed a lower amount of capital to open. Uh, you only needed like $20,000 of standing money, whereas like a federal bank, you needed 30000 or whatever. So they needed a bank. They could throw up, well, we're going to make the savings bank and throw up a lower amount of capital, get a bunch of investors in, and then they could get what they needed and move on from there. Okay, so can do we have any sense at all of what the, uh, the assets of the Long Grove Bank are at the point at which um, the, uh, the bank robbery takes place? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, there was roughly in savings, bonds, cash, Etc. It was roughly around a little more than five thousand dollars, which for that day and age, I mean, where you could, you know, go grocery shopping for about five bucks. I mean, this is a lot of money, a lot of investments. Sure, and and so you you talked about that. How much of that is is easily accessible? Is this all sitting around in in paper dollars and coins, in in stock certificates? What what do the assets look like that are portable? All of the above. Okay. Uh, there was stock, like you mentioned, stock certificates. There were bonds. There was cash. There were coins, and the way it was set up, there was a certain amount. So. The way it was set up then is that you would walk in and there was a very ornate teller's window and you would go in and they had a certain amount of funds there and then they had a time lock safe and you could get in there. They mostly kept it open so for access until they were ready for close of the day. Then they locked the door and that was that. But in there, they had a bunch more assets of various kinds. Now, exactly what was where and how much, that we don't know. But we know that all of these things were there and they were accessible uh, to the robbers, actually, when they came in. 
Can you talk to us a little bit about bank robbers generally at this time period, how they were perceived? Um, I know that some people during Prohibition would, would cheer for the robbers more than the banks in some of these situations. And, and I would think in um, Long Grove, if it was my money being taken, I, I'd, I'd be a little more conflicted. <laughs> <laughs> that's That's a very good point. I think that when you're seeing that from other people, you know, maybe a, you have some disgruntled people, the bank, they felt the bank gave them a raw deal. And so they would come out and say, yeah, good for them. Go ahead and get them. But bank robberies in local areas, when they were robbing your bank, that was generally not taken very well. And bank robbery at that time, it had started to evolve. Bank robbery, period, always evolves. Crime across the board does. And like the time lock safe, for instance. So it started off, banks didn't really have much. I mean, there was like a window, maybe, usually it was maybe one room, and they would come in and there was a strong box, and that kept everything you had. Well, it kept going back and forth. Thieves figured out, well, we could hammer off the lock. Well, we'll get a safe, and it's stronger. Well, we can pour acid down the lock. And so it evolves in the time... And pretty soon, you have these bigger and better innovations. It's harder to rob uh, if you hit it wrong. Like, the, you can't grab somebody like the time lock safe. Once it's closed, it's closed for 24 hours. Even if you put the right combination in, that lock still won't open until the correct time the next day. So, I mean, that was actually an innovation to prevent robbery. Um, in Long Grove, they, were, they seemed to have a very successful relationship with their banks. Nobody really seemed to hate banks in Long Grove and Eldridge uh, because the communities were so tied together because there were so many farmers going back and forth. And so there was, they were one of the banks that jumped on, starting about 1920, there was a rash of bank robberies across the state and people were starting to get tired of it. So the Iowa Bankers Association, the umbrella association that covered all of these banks, that were a good portion of them, they decided to implement something called the Iowa Vigilance Commissions. And basically what it was is that these people were officially deputized. Each member bank had to have at least four members, and they were given... Uh, they were deputized, they were given guns, they were given ammunition, and their job was to watch over for any burglaries or any robberies that took place, and if need be, stop them. And it was very successful, because before they had hired the Pinkerton Agency, uh, Pinkerton Detective Agency, Burns Detective Agency, to come out and prevent that kind of thing. Well, they were also doing forgeries and anything else you can think of as far as crime, and they were spread a little thin across the state. Well, now you have plenty of people in each place, and if something happens, they can step forward and they can handle that issue. And they did, and they were very good at it. All right. Well, uh, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. 
98.5 FM website keeps you up to date with everything KALA, including a complete program schedule for 88.5 and 106.1 FM. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Brett Menard. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is author John Brassard, and we're talking about the great Long Grove bank robbery of 1921. The history buff is Rick Sweet. Uh, Rick is a man who, who values his money. We're going to let you start. And I have my money in a small town bank. Do you? <laughs> you, you finally, you finally dug it out of the, the, uh, the back of the hill behind the house. Yep, and finally it caved in. I had to get it out. So. <laughs> hey, John. Good to have you back. Uh, Thanks, sir. Tell me about, uh, walk us through the, the Great Long Grove <laughs> Bank Robbery of 1921. What happened? <laughs> Okay, so the the short of it is is that on December fifteenth, nineteen twenty one, in the middle of the business day, a big car uh, they call it a Hudson touring car, or Hudson mm-hmm. Six. Uh, it was it was very noticeable. It comes roaring up the main street. It parks outside of the bank. Two guys get out. Then everything about these guys scream bank robberies. They had overcoats. They had hats. They had handkerchiefs over their faces and guns in their hands. The one guy had uh, uh, what they called a grip, one of those black doctor's bags. And they come running up the steps to the bank, and the door's locked. <laughs> and you, you have to think, this is in the middle of the day. This isn't like at 7 o'clock at night, everybody's at home. This is in the middle of the business day. Everybody and their brother, there's the hotel across the street with people doing business. There's people walking up from the train depot a block away. There's people over at Marie's Barber Shop getting their hair cut. There's people at the garage. There's people at Alcoin's Blacksmith Shop getting their stuff worked on. Everybody and their brother's out, and everybody sees them, and they don't know what to do. This was not in their plan. The door's locked. And so they get back in the car, and they drive away. Well, word spreads throughout the town. Everybody talks. Everybody wants to know what happened. Somebody tried to rob the bank. Some people believe it. Some people don't. There's a couple people that end up at the bank talking to R.K. Brownlee. And what had happened is that Brownlee and his a bookkeeper, a young woman named Jean Marty, she was about 21, 22 years old at the time. And that does factor in later. Uh, they had gone home for lunch. It's a small town. They locked the door and went home. Everybody knew, well, you just come back at one and it'll be fine. And Sure enough, at 1 o'clock, they come back. By that time, everybody and their brother knew about it, partially in thanks to this guy had actually taken it upon himself to run across around the entire village, the entire circumference of the village, and knock on doors and tell everyone that he saw, hey, somebody tried to rob the bank. How's that for enthusiasm? <laughs> so they come back, and there's four of them talking to the bank, a grain dealer named E.H. Schultz. Uh, the blacksmith from across the street, Al Clint, and, of course, R.K. Brownlee and Gene Marty, they're in the front of the bank, and they're discussing this whole thing. Well, the robbers come back, they come in, they rob the place. As a matter of fact, as they walk in, they don't stop on Schultz and Clint. 
they cross each other. Clint and Anschultz walk out, and the bank robbers walk in. They don't stop them, don't say anything. I mean, it was almost like, hey, guys, how you doing? I'm doing okay. Have a nice day. <laughs> and they went, and these guys, they, they robbed the bank, uh, and they took approximately about $5,000. They took everything they could and just landed in this bag. And they first they went to the teller's window, and then they went to the president's office, and then they went to the vault. And the entire time, they're sitting there, and they you got to think, Brownlee's like 75 years old when this is going on. They're yelling at him and screaming at him and pistol-whipping him. He was hit several times by both of them across the head. I mean, it's a wonder they didn't kill the guy. And then in the same breath, they would hit him and demand where the money is, and then they would look at Jean Marty, this terrified 20-year-old girl. She's like, hey, you know, these guys are, you know, kicking the snot out of this guy and you know he's bleeding and it's looking ugly and then it would, hey it's okay you're gonna get through this everything's gonna be okay we're not mad at you it's like my god what is wrong with you so they steal everything they can they wipe out the bank well in the meantime there's the Vigilance Commission. Al Clint was one of the chief members of the Vigilance Commission, and he got out there, and so he ran out. As a matter of fact, him and Anschultz went and ran and got guns. Uh, I take that back. There was a guy that came, that was a handoff. They hand uh, Al Clint a couple pistols, and he went up in the window of the bar next door, up above. Because it's, it's a two-story bar, it's still there, and he actually ran up above, and him and another guy named Dick Tobin have taken up shooting positions in the windows, and there are, like, I, there's over a dozen people all armed, all around the bank entrance, undercover, waiting for these guys to come out. They're done, and they don't know it. At the same time, they have phoned ahead to N.H. Calderwood, who was in Davenport. He got the message. And so uh, he actually got phoned twice. So they phoned down to him. He knows it's there. The Eldridge Vigilance Commission, remember, each town had one if they so chose. Well, Eldridge had one, and they come up on the road between Long Grove and Eldridge, and they, which is the getaway road for these guys. And they park their cars across the road and take up shooting positions in the trees and around their cars. These guys are done. They have no idea they are yet. Well, they come running out, and at first they're told, you know, stop and drop the money. Well, for whatever reason, uh, the first robber out, he decided he saw one of them, and he decided to start shooting first. And all hell breaks loose. And there's bullets everywhere. And uh, the first robber, he's shot eight times. And he dies there. And then uh, the second guy comes out. He shot four times, and he makes it to the car. Unbeknownst to him, they had left the car running. They were going to get away. He was just going to hop in and drive away, go down to Davenport, and do whatever. The problem was is that on the way, this guy had gotten curious, a guy named Archie Hunt, and he, had, he was working nearby. He comes up to the barber shop and wants to know what the all the commotion's about. He said, and, well, yeah, you see that car over there? He said, yeah, well, that's the robber's car. You don't say. I'll be right back. And he walks over, reaches in, takes out the keys, and goes back in the barbershop. <laughs> and so this guy jumps in. He's been shot four times. He's been shooting back just I mean, blindly just to you know, kind of keep him down so they can't shoot at him. 
he gets in the car, he's got a gun in his hand, he's bleeding, and the car won't go, so he's probably really confused as why the car won't move. And so they come up to the window, they swarm him, and they tell him, give us the gun. And he looks at him, what gun? <laughs> right. They yank him out of the car, they handcuff him, so he's sitting there bleeding. They call the sheriff, they call the, uh, and... In answer to your earlier question, law enforcement is pretty much non-existent anywhere outside of the major cities. The rural areas were blanketed. You might have uh, like a marshal or somebody, just kind of a token law enforcement person. You could have handle little things. Otherwise, you had to wait for the sheriff. And it was a 15-minute drive from Davenport for the sheriff to finally get there with a couple deputies and the county coroner. Now, in their enthusiasm, they had handcuffed Hamilton, uh, one of the robbers and the guy who was in the car, the other guy who's dead on the sidewalk. I mean, he's laying in a pool of blood. You can see this in crime scene photos. He is, he's gone. They hog tie him <laughs> just to make sure he doesn't get away. Right. <laughs> and uh, they come up and the sheriff rolls up and there's people everywhere. There's all the women and children to come out, and they're playing in the streets, and they're looking at the body, and they're talking, they're looking at Hamilton, and they're looking at all this other stuff, and they're, they're waving to the sheriff, all, and his name was uh, Bill Bremer. And they said, hi, Bill, how you doing? And it was so bizarre, and Cantwell gets out, he's the coroner, uh, and he gets out. And he looks at Hamilton. He's like, what is he doing here? Uncuff this guy. They take him across the street to the pool hall, and they lay him out on a pool hall so Cantwell can examine him and see how bad he's wounded. And he ends up going to Mercy Hospital. But that was essentially the great Longo bank robbery. Uh, the Iowa Bankers Association for the prevention, successful prevention of a bank robbery in your town or your area, they would give you like a $1,000 reward. Longo was awarded that plus they switched up between everybody else like the Eldridge Vigilance Commission and the Eldridge Savings Bank and things because all of those guys they felt had a part too so everybody even got a little bit of a payday they got their pictures in, uh, in the paper all across the state it ended up being a, a pretty big day <laughs> yeah a social event <laughs> i'm reminded of of uh, a favorite quote of a friend of rick's which is anything worth doing is worth overdoing <laughs> does seem like that may be applied here somehow um so definitely i i i'm not sure where to begin i have so many questions but we'll start since you've you mentioned one of the robbers can you give us a little background on these guys are are these just two guys with the iq of a kumquat that that you know got a wild hair and and decided to do this or do these guys have criminal pasts who are who are these these uh, guys so the robbers ended up being one of the mastermind, if that's what you want to call it. Um, he was a guy named Harry Hamilton, uh, Harry M. Hamilton. He had actually started out as a Davenport cop, and he he was pretty successful at it. He actually, coincidentally, he operated the police switchboard for a certain number of years. And then he was approached by a man named Dan Drost, and Dan Drost was John Looney of Rock Island fame. He was approached by him to be the editor of the Rock Island News. John Looney started the Rock Island News about 1905, and basically what it was, without getting into the whole history of that, that's a whole other rabbit hole, 
he did it. One of the big things that they did was slander and blackmail. It was the worst yellow journalism that you could possibly imagine. I mean, they made up everything and they didn't care. And extortion was a big part of their thing. They would print up uh, false uh, news story. And they would sit there and they would invite somebody in a prominent citizen. It could be somebody with a lot of money. It could be something, somebody they wanted something from. And they would bring them in and they would show them this paper. And they say, if you must give us what, you, what we want, whatever that is, then we're going to publish this tomorrow and we're going to run it. And they did that. They actually had a very lucrative side business going with that. Well, for whatever reason, Hamilton hooks up with Dross. And who was running the paper at that time, John Looney had uh, John Looney had gotten into some trouble, and he was actually living in New Mexico at the time. And so he Dross got permission from Looney to bring Hamilton as the editor. Well, in about 1920, Hamilton and Dross are arrested for libel, and they go to prison, or uh, Hamilton goes to prison. And he's there for 10 months. They keep The authorities keep trying to flip him, trying to, hey, we want you to turn on Dan Dross. He won't do it. He won't do it. He finally decides he doesn't like prison. So he decides, okay, we're going to, I, I'm tired of being here. So he turns state's evidence. Dan Dross goes to jail. Hamilton gets out. The issue is, is that Hamilton gets out, but then he hooks up with another bank robbery or uh, another robbery. They robbed something out in Wheatland Island, Clinton, Clinton County, and then he goes back to prison. He gets out. He tries some blue-collar jobs. Uh, actually, discovered he was a salesman for however long. He can't get through. He, he's trying to go straight. He's telling everybody in the brother, oh, I can't go straight. I, you know, I'm trying to go straight. and trying to go straight. You know, I don't want to go back. And, of course, he decides at some point he's had enough, and he decides to rob a bank. And he hooks up with a guy, a Davenport barber by the name of Ray per- or Roy pardon me, Purple. And Roy Purple was just one of those people that likes to be around bad people. He liked to be around robbers and criminals and gangsters and whatever else. He was just one of those guys. Was he one? The, he was questioning connection to a rash of Davenport robberies. Uh, but he was never connected to it. So he never did any jail time. He was married with two twin boys. And as far as anybody could ever tell, he was just a barber. So if he was a criminal, he was either really good at keeping it or he wasn't involved in anything. And from the performance of the Longo Bank robbery, I don't think he was just really good at keeping things a secret. <laughs> All right. Um, so it's customary that we give our guests the last word on a show. John, why do you think knowing about the great Long Grove bank robbery is relevant in today's world? Uh, the great Long Grove bank robbery is tied to not only a lot of local history, but it's tied to state history of both crime and law enforcement. It shows what people are capable of when they can when they're given something to handle themselves. That was a big part of the element between the vigilance commissions. And not only that, the bank robbery has become local legend, so it's almost like folklore. And anytime you have folklore, it helps us to understand the actual facts behind it so that we have a clearer view of the past and it doesn't get obscured with 
a bunch of embellishments because there's been a few of those with this too. <laughs> you bet. When we come back, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 416th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker, our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is Brett Menard. And my name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, author John Brassard, who talked to us about the Great Long Grove Bank Robbery of 1921. Our history buff was Rick Sweet. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Otsa Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Thank you.